Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast. I'm Isabel Berrick, Executive Editor at FT Work and Careers, and joining me today is my colleague Andrew Hill, FT Management Editor. Hello. We're recording this series of the podcast around the theme of how to live and work better in a tech-driven age. We're talking about new books that offer advice and practical steps towards that dream, ahead of the launch of the 2018 FT & McKinsey Business Book of the Year Prize later this spring. In this episode, We'll be talking to Andrea Komloschi, who's a professor in the Department for Social and Economic History at the University of Vienna in Austria. She's the author of a new book with the incredibly ambitious title, Work, The Last 1,000 Years. And amazingly, she's crammed all of that history into just 200 pages. Andrea joins us on the line from Vienna. Welcome. Hello. Nice to, to not to meet you, but to talk to you. <laughs> Your book's incredibly ambitious. What gave you the idea to cover the entire history of work? I mean, as a social and economic historian, it's a quite a usual approach that you see how things change over time. And that's why I took a longer period of time in order to see how the approach to, towards work, what people understand when they speak of work and also how work is organized, how that changes. So, Andrea, I'm interested in the period that you chose as well as the conclusions that you drew, you take into account what the Greeks thought about work, what were the ideas of work as they developed during the millennium that you cover. What is the one thing that has stayed the same about work? Because a lot has changed, as you explain. Yeah, I mean, my focus is more uh, on the changes uh, when you ask like this, because uh, in, in Greek antiquity, it's quite clear that there was a disdain of work. Yeah? Work was not highly appreciated. It was not estimated. So uh, those who could afford it, it was, of course, only a part of the society, they tried to avoid work, work and do praxis instead, political uh, engagement, philosophy, and, and, and so on. So there was a clear negative image of work. And that changed in the Middle Ages, in the Christian, Jewish, or also Muslim Middle Ages. Their labor, I would rather take the notion of labor, got a, a positive image. It was painful, but nevertheless, uh, you could combine it with prayers, and then it was appreciated in the society. So that is a change uh, in seeing work. And then in the Middle Ages, there's another change that comes with, with the professional crafts, when work became something with which you could realize yourself. You could create a piece of work, and work was something very positive in giving sense to your life. I found one of the things really fascinating, that the notion of work as we might define it today, as in anchored in legislation and perhaps in trade unions and as a regulated activity, that sort of idea of work only came into being in the West at the end of the 19th century. So 
Just looking backwards, if Andrew and I were middle class people in 1750, which is one of the key dates in your book, how would we think about work? Let's say you were artisans, you were, let's say, a couple of uh, tailors, then you would have a business. And normally it would be the man who would be the professional businessman uh, with some uh, apprentices and, and helpers. Uh, and so he, from our perspective, he would be the one who works. Uh, but from the contemporary perspective, so the wife, she would also be part of the business, even if she just runs the household of that business, because it takes also a lot of work to maintain such a household, which has maybe even an agrarian basis, or it has some coaches, it has some horses to take care of, and so on. And of course, all the people who work in that, let's say, family or domestic economy. Yeah? And so it would be quite clear there's a division of labor. There's maybe also a different position in the society. The men would maybe participate in politics, while the wife would have some other social activities. And I do not want to say that they were equal, but both their work was seen as a contribution to the family household. More recently, women were quite actively barred from the workforce, from paid work. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think perhaps women had more status in this earlier time, in this earlier time as yes, workers? Definitely, yes. As long as women cooperate with men in a common business, women's work is acknowledged and everybody is aware that the cooperation is necessary and that each contribution is valuable. And this devaluation of female work that came along with the move of work into the factory or into a workplace outside of the domestic sphere. Then work moved into that outer sphere and in places outside of the family home. And a lot of work, of course, remained in the family home, but it was not considered to be work anymore. It was then associated with women's nature or with something that you do just of love or so, but it lost its character as work. And this, to my mind, this had a negative impact on women within the family, but also on women within the society. Was this division reinforced by things like the Industrial Revolution, which created more of a centralised factory type of labour I'm also interested to know whether you think some of the things that you've mentioned in the book, some of the writing and thinking around the time by men mainly, such as Adam Smith and Ricardo, reinforce those divisions between what people thought of as being work. Uh, You are completely right. Of course, the Industrial Revolution was a main turning point in redefining work in terms of gainful employment outside of the home and neglecting the work character of things done in the household. Of course, in later periods of the factory system, also women entered into the factory system, but I think even their status in the factory system is still overshadowed by the fact that their primary duty is seen within the confines of the household. And of course, the national economy that developed around the modern economy, it followed very much this transformation of work to this, uh, to this gainful and accountable em- employment, and it didn't consider paid work to be valuable. We tend to think these days about work having to be enjoyable and having meaning. Is that partly what your book made me think, that this was perhaps a delusion, that in fact we are all trying to think of work as meaningful when in fact most of the time over the thousand years that you cover it has been very very hard and unenjoyable for most people. I see a tension between these possibilities that work offers. Uh, Of course work is pain and heartful and if you can choose you would try to avoid it but on the other hand to my mind mankind is is somehow defined by realization in work. So 
it also has this possibility of offering challenge and, and satisfaction when you create something. It doesn't necessarily have to be a piece of work. It can also be a service uh, with which you identify. And I see these possibilities of identification also in, in types of work that are not on the well-paid uh, side. Huh? Because also unpaid work, let's say in the, in the household or in a, in a society, voluntary work and so on, it, uh, you can identify with it. Uh, so this idea that work has to be overcome, this of course is an old uh, human utopia, mm. uh, but I think this is only one coin of the side. The other side of the coin, sorry, is that work attracts people in order to realize their expectations about what they want to do in life. Where do you stand on the idea for universal basic income? Because Having read your book, it seems that the type of work that isn't paid but is fulfilling in a society where everyone got a UBI, that would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? Yes, but if we really wanted to introduce such an income, I think we would have to define very clearly who is eligible and who is paying it. I mean, if we had a, a perfect global state, we could say, OK, this is a human right for every world citizen. But I don't see how this could be realized. Rather, I see that this is something that is offered as a kind of variety of social support for mm. people who otherwise would be poor. That's why I see it, it divides, the, let's say, the working population in those who get that income and then are free to do whatever they want, uh, while the others are able to make career and to have a better position in the society. So my idea is that we should not split the people along this line, but everybody should uh, have the possibility to have paid work. Uh, and my idea is that if we want to create space for unpaid work, for social work, for voluntary work and, and so on, also for work in the household, caring at activities, then everybody should take part in this type of activities. So I would rather combine within a person's life, but also within a family life and the, the whole society, the, the fact that these different types of work are not split among the population, but everybody participates in them. Your book has a useful reminder that the word robot comes from the Central European idea of you know, forced labour as a form of rent paid to the landlords. I wondered, and this is going to be a bit unfair because you're a historian and not a futurologist, but I wondered what your look at the way in which labour has changed as as it has become more mechanised over time tells you about the future of humans as work becomes more automated in the current workplace and that of the, of the next 50 years. This question is a, is a very interesting one, but I don't know exactly why the same word is taken. Uh, maybe because this machine that we call robot has to obey and has no possibility to reject any task that we expect from him or her. I don't know which yes. sex we should give to the robot. Or it. <laughs> or it, yes, yeah. <laughs> it. yeah. That's the solution. But anyhow, I mean, the robot that was performed in, in medieval times that were persons uh, that did it. Now it's these machines, so it's something that uh, that is supposed to help and to relieve uh, the working men and women, which it does to a certain extent. But I think the the improvements are, are only partial. Yeah? Uh, of course, uh, in some cases, uh, people then con concentrate on more creative parts of work, but the painful work doesn't disappear. It, it goes along with robots, or it goes uh, it accompanies robots. It's not always a step of more qualification. Uh, if robots are introduced. Uh, yes. uh, for some, yes, and for others, not so. And, and anyhow, it's the problem of how many jobs there are left over. Yes, and I suppose your, your book makes very clear that over time, 
as the circumstances in which people labour change, you talked about the Industrial Revolution, obviously, some of the consequences of that are, can be unintended, a bit like the way in which women's status actually declined, as you've described. And so possibly some of the consequences of people being freed from basic jobs by robots and automation might be less positive than we perhaps hope. Of course, many, many things are unintended. It is a development that uh, consists of so many factors that you cannot have a clear teleology in it. But of course, you have interest in it. And if it's about, uh, let's say, ca capital accumulation, then it, that is not necessarily going hand in hand with, with a more satisfying working day for, let's say, for unskilled labor. Unskilled labor should cost as low as possible. And that's why painful work is recreated in every new technological uh, surrounding. And then also, if we speak about this, let's say, liberating potentials of automation, yeah. uh, then we shouldn't forget about all these hard works in, in the caring industry and, and so on, which cannot be taken over by robots so easily. Of course, you can imagine that we already have these examples, that robots uh, do work in hospitals or in, in, in old people's uh, uh, residences and so on. But if you carry that on, you risk to lose human dignity in this context. Yes. I think we've talked mostly about the West so far, but I was really struck in your book, you talk about how India and China were world leaders in global industrial production in 1750, but that had fallen back to almost nothing by 1900. Why do you think these astonishing figures are not better known? Is it because we've sort of hijacked a, a Western narrative? What happened? Was it about colonialism? I'm also wondering, because that is so obvious and so so amazing, and of course in, in scientific circles, those who do global history, it's more or less self-understood to, to see this enormous contribution of South and East Asia to the global industrial production until the 18th or 19th century. India lost it a little bit earlier because of British colonialism, and, and in China it lasted until the 19th century, but then British and also some other Western nations advanced with the opium wars and so on, also pushed it back and they lost their, their industrial basis uh, until they regained it just recently. But oh. that's a different story, of course. Yes, uh, so it hasn't come out of nowhere at all, really, has it? I mean, they've regained what, what they'd lost, which was really a revelation to me. I think the fact that this previous competence now is more and more recognized is also because you need some explanations for why these states have such a successful catching up uh, uh, process, while others who didn't have this, uh, this history of, of manufacturing cannot take part in the global economy in the same level. But I mean, I think one of the, of the reasons why this is, is not a broad knowledge is the fact that those who were successful in establishing the, the lead in industrial development, so in the 18th and 19th century, that was Great Britain, they were also successful in establishing the narrative of their own success. And their own success, of course, is the greater, the more they can say, okay, this was all done from our internal creativity and flexibility and, and how state and enterprise cooperates and innovation and, and the political system and so on. So all these narratives that are basic for explaining the Industrial Revolutions, they lack, of course, very much the fact that this Industrial Revolution was also realized in a kind of competitive, you can say dialogue, or in a competitive struggle with those regions of the world 
uh, that were leading in, in industrial production at that time. And of course, uh, it was British protectionism and also British expansionism that kicked them out of the global market. And this is not a very nice story. So I think only slowly it, it, it becomes more popular. Yes, I really did like the way in which you lay out very clearly at the beginning of the book how you are going to take the Central European perspective, a different angle on history that we as British people know, even if we try hard to avoid being London-centric or UK-centric, we know our own history from what we've been taught, and that very much does centre us on the fabulous creativity of the Great Exhibition in London or the Industrial Revolution. I like the fact that your book gives us a, a completely different angle. I mean, it's quite normal to learn history and to talk about history from the perspective from which your ancestors experienced it. So I do not blame, let's say, centrisms completely because everybody is centered somewhere and, and then tells the story. But if you want to have a kind of equal history, then you have to accept that there are various angles from which you can tell the history. And of course, as I said, that the narrative is very much influenced by those who could set the standards of what it means to be successful, let's say, in, in industrial development, and that was very much influenced by, by the British lead uh, after outcompeting the Asians, let's put it like this. Uh, and let's say for us in, in Central European countries, it's always a little bit uh, difficult to identify with this British success story that didn't take place in our states and regions. Of course, there was also catching up industry, and uh, we shouldn't blame. We also became part of the, let's say, global core. But nevertheless, the story is not told from our perspective. And so when I'm starting to write a book that wants to, to be more inclusive in the perspectives, I do not leave my point of view uh, and try to define, okay, I look at this global development from a certain location, and that's only how I can make it feasible, because I cannot write, of course, at least not in 200 pages and not with my language competence, a, a global history of work that really takes account of every development in every part of the world. So I write global history of work from a certain location, and from there I see how the different uh, work and labor relations that take place in other parts of the world during the colonial period, in, in global trade, in, in, in the global commodity chains, and so on how they relate to what work and labour looks like in this smaller part from where my perspective starts from. I was so pleased to read this book. It really did give me a very different perspective on work, exactly as you've said. You know, I've cast off the shackles of my Anglo-centric view and you've, you've shown me the whole world. And for that, I wanted to thank you. We always end with a life-affirming recommendation in this rather fraught world about things we're reading or about to read at the moment. Andrew, is there anything on your pile? Well, I've just read two novels very different. I'm not sure whether they're life-affirming. Um, Joanne Harris, who wrote Chocolat, uh, read her book Different Class. It's a crime story, really, set in a grammar school and with very clever narration of the teacher and pupil perspective, which is a fun read. And then rather more serious and certainly uh, a bit more depressing, Edward St. Albans reimagining of King Lear, Dunbar, which sets Lear as a Canadian media magnate who has been shipped off to a, a home in the, the English Lake District and his daughter's trying to grab his media empire from him. 
it's a uh, it's a nice reimagining of King Lear. I've just started Bitter, which is a novel about dysfunctional families by an FT colleague called Francesca Jacobi. And she managed to write this. You'll like this, Andrea. She managed to write this novel while also working in the FT newsroom which I think is a triumph of work-life balance. Andrea, is there anything on your bookshelves at the moment? My bookshelf is always full, and the books that I read for fun, they are usually in German. But there's one author who is an Englishman. He recently wrote the book 1938. You should help me with the name now. He wrote a book that is called Fatherland. Oh, Robert Harris. Yeah, yes. Robert Harris. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So Robert Harris is actually one of my favourites. I read quite a lot of his, his novels because it shows how close the role of a detective or an inquiring police officer is to the role of a historian. So you have to have a problem that is maybe a crime, then you investigate it, yeah? you have to make hypotheses, what could be responsible for this crime, and then going into the facts, you have to see it in a much broader picture, and that you have to correct your hypotheses all the time. So it's a kind of learning of criminalistic methods in order to do historical research. And his latest book, 1938, where it's a very short story about how the Munich agreement between Great Britain and France with Hitler's Germany on occupying uh, Czechoslovakia in September 1938, how you can look at it from various perspectives, from a British one, from a German one, from the Czech one, and, and so on. And that fascinated me very much. Yes, I think that's called Munich in the English version. Presumably it's called 1938 in the German version. And how right? is it called in English? It's just called Munich in the English ah, version. Ah, Munich, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much to Andrea Komloshi in Austria, to Andrew Hill here in London, and to our producer, Janina Komboy. Join us next time when we'll be talking about another new book that aims to help us to thrive in a tech-dominated age. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.